0: Hi, everyone. This is the BME grad podcast. I'm Allie. My co host is Brian. And before we get into today's episode, we have just a few announcements. After this show, we'll have just two more episodes up until a planned winter break. So the break will be two months long. We'll update you more with specific dates in the next few episodes. Um, Also, we'd like to announce that we finally have a website. So the website has links to all of our social and all the places you can find our show. We hope you share it with colleagues and friends. The website also has a lot more information about us and a form at the bottom where you can get directly in touch with us. So we hope you check it out. That's the BMEGradPodcast.com. Last, just a reminder, if you're interested, you can follow the BMEGrad Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn and subscribe to our channel on YouTube. Okay. So, we are thrilled about this episode. We have a rock star guest on today, and we are so thankful for this conversation and her time. So, without further ado, today's guest is Dr. Eileen Huang Saad. Dr. Wang Saad is an associate professor of bioengineering at Northeastern University and the director of life sciences and engineering programs at the Rue Institute in Portland, Maine. She is deputy editor in chief of Springer's Biomedical Engineering Education, past division chair for the American Society of Engineering Education's Biomedical Engineering Division a member of the National Academy of Science Roundtable on systemic change in undergraduate STEM education and has won several teaching awards. She also serves on the Maine State Workforce Board. Dr. Huangstad's current research areas are entrepreneurship, innovation, and transforming higher education. Today she talks with us about choosing a BME program and how to identify how programs at different universities might vary. Let's say you've already chosen your program. Eileen talks about how you can identify and then leverage what your BME program gives you towards your career goals. We also have a few discussions around finding ways to close the gap between industry and what's learned in higher education. Please enjoy this fantastic episode with Dr. Wong Sab. Hey, Eileen, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here.
0: We're excited to have you. It's been a long time coming since we connected probably honestly a year ago, maybe so glad to finally have you here. Um, For those listening, we have so many topics to like talk to you about today. For those listening, would you mind just giving us a brief overview of your background? Because I know you teach, you're a part of a lot of organizations, uh, you do a lot of research. Um, If you wouldn't mind giving an overview, that would be great.
1: Sure. Um, so my name is Eileen Huang I'm currently the director of life sciences and engineering programs at the Rue Institute, which is a one of the regional campuses for Northeastern University. Um, I've been at Northeastern for just over a year and a half because I came from University of Michigan, where I was on faculty in the Department of Biomedical Engineering for 14 years. Um, My background is a little unique to most faculty members that you'll run into, because I often tell people I did the reverse commute, where I did my PhD at Johns Hopkins, my undergrad was at University of Pennsylvania. Um, And then while I was planning on going into the traditional academic track, because of dual career families and all of those things, I ended up taking a little bit of a detour and I spent several years in industry where I was doing medical device testing and development to um, doing a quick postdoc in functional imaging, then spending some time at an FFRDC, which is a federally funded development research center, and then ended up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I worked with venture capital a startup and things of that sort. Um, someone asked me to join University of Michigan around 2006-2007 time frame. Um, where I got to go back to what my true passion was, which was teaching, because I have an undergrad in bioengineering and a PhD in biomedical engineering. And I had always said that if I had an opportunity to really impact bioengineering and biomedical engineering curriculum, I wanted that chance. So when they asked me to join the department and teach engineering design, I was really excited. There um, There had been a shift in the time when I graduated to the time when I joined In that, a lot of departments were recognizing that we needed to do more in order to close the gap between professional practice and higher education. And so, I had that opportunity in working with design. Many of you are familiar with capstone design programs. This was becoming much more popular in the 2006-2007 timeframe. Developed a master's program in medical device um, product development, and then ended up co-founding the Center for Entrepreneurship at University of Michigan, and then most recently. Um, Pivoting a little bit to do educational research in both entrepreneurship, innovation and higher education.
0: That was a lot. Then thank you for going through all of that. (laughs) It's so (laughs) impressive. (laughs) Um, Could you tell me a little bit more about what your research focuses on?
1: Yeah, so... um... I guess in about, since I started teaching at uh, University of Michigan, I was so interested in how people learn and how we can facilitate better learning environments for students. Um, What happened was the first class I taught, it's very interesting because um, you spend so much time being taught, uh, at least people who train to teach in um, K through 12, right? You have to get degrees, you get all kinds of certification. Um, it's sort of interesting to me that when you teach in higher education, it's pretty much not that regulated, right? So um, while I'm very fortunate to have had the opportunity to start teaching, it was sort of unique that, you know, really my credential was I have a PhD. Um, and so I was really excited. The first class that I taught um, was biomedical uh, product development and innovation. And I was so um, interested in making sure that my students would have an ability to have some type of portfolio that they could take forward when they were trying to find a job that wasn't Mm. academics. And that was really informed by my own personal experience, having done a PhD in a basic science program, and then trying to go find a job in industry and realizing that I didn't quite have the network or um, even understand how to approach that community, right? Mm -hmm. So having done that myself, I thought, well, you know, if we could do something in in my class to help students have that portfolio and help them be informed, to me, that would be a win. The interesting thing is in the first year that I taught, the students became very entrepreneurial. And so a class of 17 students raised, uh, and I can't remember the actual numbers, Definitely over $40,000. Wow.
0: Okay. To That's impressive. Their,
1: right. To advance their technology. And this was in 2007, whereas I only raised about 35,000. So I was feeling a little bit, you know, these guys totally <laughs> crushed me. Right. So I was very intrigued. Like, why is it that this was successful? And I would love to tell you that it was because I'm an incredible educator and I'm so inspiring. <laughs> that is not the case. So if you actually break down what we did in the classroom, it was very much around experiential learning. We formed teams, we basically created our um, community to be, we were basically an incubator, where each team, they were um, working with different physicians that came into the class and said, this is a problem that I'm trying to solve, this is how I'm currently solving them, and these are the limitations of my solutions. And then the students would work with them to understand the problem, try and develop a prototype, but they also had to develop a commercialization plan that would actually take it from the prototype into market. theory right? Um, and so that was great. And so I worked in teams and I had not only the teams were working to advance their own ideas, but we all know that eight in 10 startups fail. So they had to help each other, right? So we did design reviews where they were giving feedback, all of these things. So it was very much a self-directed framework. They picked their own project. They got to pick their own teams. They had to advance their ideas. And so if you look into the educational literature, a lot of the things that we were doing actually have grounding in why how to advance or um, help people learn in the classroom, right? Collaborative learning, problem-based learning, project-based, all of those pieces. And so that's some of the things that started to intrigue me. There was a lot of literature coming out about entrepreneurship as well. Mm -hmm. So entrepreneurship is really unique in terms of at least when you look in the engineering community. um, In the last 15 years, entrepreneurship has become more and more a conversation, right, in the classroom or in the in colleges of engineering and and beyond. In fact, Um, I think at one time people thought about entrepreneurship as being um, creating stakeholder value and and creating companies. Mm -hmm. But teaching students about an entrepreneurial mindset actually helps them much more beyond than just kind of creating a company. And it's really important to engineers because engineers really want to solve a problem and the entrepreneurial um, process helps them do that, and it teaches people how to work with limited resources, how to advocate for their ideas, how to advance their ideas. And so um, all of these things became really important to me, and as we were implementing them at the university, I wanted to make sure that we were doing them in the spirit of the, of the evidence based practices and so My research very much is around, you know, how do we create um, communities that would actually entrepreneurial communities that would be open and inclusive to all individuals? Um, How do you actually transform a culture to make them more entrepreneurial? Uh, And then how do you bring evidence based practices into the classroom? And so that's a lot of the research that I've been doing over the last um, several years, because to me. I think higher education needs to change. We need to find ways to really close the gap between professional practice and higher ed, and we need to do better for the students in the classroom.
2: So it sounds like a lot of the, like, it sounds like the audience for your research is towards educators and trying to figure out how to progress the education in this field. Is Are there any takeaways that students could get from it as well on um, maybe, uh, like you kind of mentioned entrepreneurship and being interested in that or, you know, how it could, Go beyond, but um, might there be any tidbits for students who might look into your research as well?
1: Yeah, so there's a lot of different ways that um, students can leverage what I've been learning. I mean, one of which is definitely the entrepreneurial process, like the value. How do you actually think entrepreneurially? What you would do in order to inspire that within yourself? But there's also um, a lot of the things that I did in the last few years while I was at Michigan was create, um, sort of try and find ways to trade to change the overall culture and the way in which we learn within departments, right? So it's a really complicated problem, right? There's, it's is—it's—it's a close, you know, when you think about higher education, it's sort of a closed system. You push on one piece, something else is gonna come out of line somewhere. So we know, A, how people learn. We know that um, faculty in particularly r one institutions, they, they want to, they, they have to teach, but they also, No one enjoys getting um, bad teaching scores, right? But at the same time, the responsibilities of um, educators in these institutions at all, you know, R1, you name it, all higher ed, there's a lot of responsibility being shut on people. Go ahead, Allison.
0: What are R1 institutions?
1: Right. So those are research level one institutions, Mm -hmm. right, that have a certain level of um, research funding. And so when you go into these different institutions... Um, There's a Carnegie classification of how they uh, classify different higher ed institutions and so R1 institutions often are tied with medical schools, you have a large responsibility to bring in grants and to develop a research endeavor. But you're also supposed to teach and provide okay. service and all of those things. Mm-hmm. So it gets really complicated to ask people to say, OK, at the same time, I want you to bring in all of these evidence based practices into your classroom, change the way you teach, mm-hmm. really cultivate this new environment and um, all of these things. It becomes complicated. So <clears throat> how can we really address some of these barriers to changing education? Right. So you've got that. You've got um We want people to understand what the needs of industry are, but the reality is a lot of our faculty, they're not working with industry, so they may, or they might be a consultant, but they won't really know the practices that you all as graduates would need to know. Um, So the question is, is what can we do about it? So we created this incubator where we said, let's take multi-generational teams. And in this case, we were gonna do a design class, the same way you would do a design class in engineering, but instead of developing a widget, we are going to develop an educational experience, right? So we took faculty, we took upper level undergrads because they know the curriculum. We took mm-hmm. graduate students because they are gonna be your potential educators in the future. And we created teams and we said, okay, here's your task. Go identify what the needs are of, a, of an industry you're interested in. Find out what they are interested in the students knowing if you wanna hire them as a first or second year intern. Right to help those students get those first you know, opportunities to, to, to work in these companies. And then let's try and create a hands-on learning module so that we can br- introduce that into the curriculum. So what happened was they did this in the fall, they created it, we also read about evidence-based practices, how do you really thoughtfully create a hands-on experience and, and all of those pieces. And then the students taught the class in The winter term, the following winter or spring, it depends on where what type of school you you know, but it's basically in the January time frame. And then they taught this class. And then students would enroll and they would have an opportunity to take a hands-on class, which a lot of students say that they enjoy, need, want. Um, they learned a skill that had value to an industry partner, right? So that when they started applying to jobs as a very young undergraduate in biomedical engineering, they could say, Oh, at least I have the skill and then people can put them to work quickly for their summer experience or co-op and things like that. Mm -hmm. The other really nice thing about this is, right, so now you have groups of teams working on it. So your faculty are now getting exposed to it. They have new ideas to take into their classroom. You've now created a new class that undergrads or graduate students can take. And then as the interest of the professional partner changes, like for instance, you know, companies say, oh, we need R, but then maybe as time goes on, everyone's starting to use Python or things Mm -hmm. like that. Then what you do is you iterate on the curriculum, right? So that class is not as interesting to the community. You just don't offer it the next year. And then you can offer a new one. And then what we Mm -hmm. did was we did this for several years. So the really cool classes that, you know, people consistently wanted, we could have students iterate on and make better. Mm -hmm. Or we could basically sunset out something that wasn't of interest and bring something new in. And so the students were so involved with this because no one knows better the needs of the students than you all, right? So they were part of the entire design process. So those are some ways that we sort of mixed educational research and outcomes with our students. Anecdotally, a lot of students said, you know, I got a job because of specifically the classes that we took, right? Mm -hmm. So- we had a class with um, the regulatory process, which is not a common class in mm. undergraduate BME education. Yeah. Some places are including it more now. but And the interesting thing is our graduate students wanted to take that class too. So while I thought we were creating classes for first and second year students, master's level PhD students were trying to take them as well because it was exposing them to them to something that it didn't have. The other really unique thing that we had is Over 70% of the people that participated in these modules that we created were women. Now, Mm. some people will say biomedical engineering tends to be more women. So you would expect that. We had on the order of 70% plus that were women. Our department was just under 50% women at the time. So that's still quite a difference. And when you think about the community in which you've created in this engineering um, department, It speaks a little bit to, you know, you can talk about things like sense of belonging and things of that sort. Students, um, we collected data that's, you know, there were students that said, oh, I felt like I was heard in the department, right? Because Mm -hmm. their changes in which they wanted to see could actually be enacted in some way, not maybe not at the scale in which some of us want, but it's still, they were able to feel like they had ownership of some of their curriculum, um, which was also really exciting.
0: I have a positive feeling from like what we've heard from doing the podcast that more BME departments are moving this direction. Uh, But this is like a really great example of how to do that. And I really like how you brought like the multi-generational team together to kind of accomplish that and bring in all the perspectives. Okay. So there's a lot of, uh, in the, in the, how to pick a BME program, there's a lot of factors influencing this. It has to do with how much your, your university might be tied to, or the university you're evaluating might be tied to research. If it's tied to a medical school, I'm sure it's influenced partially by the industry surrounding it, Correct. um, kind of what's coming out of it. Um, I guess, uh, how, how do you choose one and, or what should you be looking out for when you choose one and, and how are those things going to affect your education and maybe what it sets you up for? Big question.
1: Yeah, really big question and really <laughs> yeah. complicated.
0: So, I mean, you're absolutely right. I
1: think everything you said uh, really influences a department. Um, I think the hard part is when you're in high school and you're applying to college, you know, you have no idea what you want, right? We're li- literally, I went into biomedical engineering because. I didn't want to, I didn't like reading and writing that much. And I was good at math. So I was like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm going to go into engineering, but I want to sort of help people too. So biomedical engineering sounds like it, right? Not very informed. That was me. Yeah, That was me, yep. that was right. me
2: as well. <laughs> that's the right? vast majority of us.
1: <laughs> Isn't it crazy? And so, so for me to tell you, oh, I think you should think about which school you want to go to and what communities, I think that's, that would be naive of me to say, okay, So, but I do suggest people think about it. Like I think the bigger things, and this is again, my personal bias because of my position where I am and thinking about higher education. I think just about everyone these days, right? the, The value of a bachelor's degree is really important. I think the literature shows that the amount of engagement you have during your college experience is really what influences your learning. So when you go look at a college and where you wanna go, I honestly tell kids, where, where is it that you feel like you belong, okay? Mm. Um, I know it sounds a little crazy and people would be like, oh, you walk into campus and you'll know. I mean, I've actually really seen it, right? So, you know, are you the kind of kid that knows what you want and wants to be able to craft your own trajectory and you will fight for your experiences? Then a big school may be great for you with lots of opportunities. I personally would not have been successful in a really large school like University of Michigan. I love University of Michigan. It's a great place. I will bleed maize and blue forever, right? Even though I'm (laughs) at Northeast. But the reality is, it's really, I would have been lost there, right? Um, There are other people that say, you know, I just can't go to a small school. It's the same size as my high school. You know, I want to experience something different, right? So, Like, do you want an urban school? Do you want a large school? Do you want to, you know, these, those are the things I would first look at. Then I would say, do they offer majors that are of interest to me, right? So if you know you want to go into engineering for obvious reasons, you have to go to one with an engineering school, right? Um, The other thing that usually comes up when you're doing biomedical engineering is the question is, oh, they're like, oh, I want to go to pre-med. I'm pre-med, right? So Mm -hmm. um, do you do biomedical engineering or do do biology? I will typically tell students, unless you are absolutely sure that you want to go into med school and you really want to do, you know, biology or the basic science, and I would consider engineering, right? Only because I believe that that gives you a wider opportunity net when you graduate. Um, People tell me that there's huge statistics that say most kids that go into, college or a large amount that go into STEM in college say that they're pre-med. But we all know that not everyone from undergrad goes into pre-med, right? <laughs> so so
0: I Pointing think, at me. <laughs>
1: there you go, right? So, you know, I just suggest to kids, right? So I like the engineering curriculum because it gives you a lot of opportunity, right? Just in case it doesn't work out. I'm not saying it's not great to go into the basic sciences, but I think the trajectory is slightly different. And I'm also a little biased that I think that, you know, you can launch your career anywhere with an engineering degree, right? I totally agree that I'm biased on that. I love engineering. I'm I identify as an engineer, so that's I'm putting that out there, um, but I think that that's important.
0: You're making 18-year-old Allie feel really proud of her decision making at that naive age. So, I <laughs> appreciate this.
1: Right? Um, I mean, it's great. The um the one thing you you do want to think about is if you want to go into research, right, and you know you want to do research, that also will influence the type of school that you pick, right? Because if you know that you want to um, only do regenerative medicine in cancer or something, so I Mm -hmm. I, I totally made something up. Um, The opportunities at a what I call an R1 university, which is a research depth university will, will be more. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm not again to my friends that teach at smaller universities. I'm not telling students not to go there Mm -hmm. because I do think like at smaller universities, there are a couple of things. One of which is you have a better opportunity to try and connect with someone to do research because you're not crawling over people at a large university and you beg to get into one. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, the reality is some of these larger universities have access to technology that the average university is not going to get. Okay, Mm -hmm. so that's one thing you have to think about um, if you're if you're that kid that knows I definitely want to go into research. Okay, Um, then it is the other thing that I do say is if you know for sure, I absolutely want to go into industry and I want to make sure that I have a connection with a way, a path there. In that instance, there are a couple of things. There are are schools with um, co-ops, that's cooperative education, where they actually connect with companies and they will help place you to certain companies, right? So Northeastern is one of those types of schools. Drexel University is one of those types of school where they have a really strong program. Um, That's something that not every institution has. So that's something else that you should think about. Um, but again, like, so as, as Allison said, with placement of where the school is, right? If you know, you grew up in New Jersey and you definitely want to work in Stryker, maybe going to place X that has no relationship with Stryker might not help you with your path. So for, I'm speaking to all you students that say, I do know what I want, right? Take, I'm not saying ignore those things. Okay. Yeah. But the average student may or may not
0: yeah
2: yeah and as we kind of uh move this conversation into into leveraging that bme program leveraging that engineering i'm actually curious because you mentioned a good point like you know it, maybe it is naive of us to uh try to make it as optimal for these incoming students to say like hey you should look into all of these things where none of us basically knew right and we kind of just got into it so whether it's in-state And that's why, or whether it is any of these other factors that you go to university and you get to a specific biomedical engineering degree, what is your advice on learning what is. Important and and good about that program that you are already in or that you're going to be in and leveraging that for after graduating or you know because because some you know is a program better set. And suited to set you up for success in medical device or pharma so what's your advice on. Understanding what your program provides and leveraging them.
0: I don't think I even fully recognized what skill sets I was advantaged with with the program I chose until I was out of it. Like, how do you recognize the things they're giving to you versus like, you know, another program might give those students different um, value adds. Like, how do you recognize the value adds from your program? Sorry to make that longer, but um, no, that's I didn't recognize it. So. <laughs>
1: cool. All right, so my here's my other caveat, right? So I have a son that is a rising senior at a university who has grown up with me as a mother and is looking for his uh, job for out of, out of college. And he, I said, have you talked to the Career Center? What? I'm like, seriously? So I can't guarantee, like he lives with me like he knew. The same thing that I'm trying to tell you all. So that's my caveat there. Um, I think, The way in which you recognize uh, things are communicate with your faculty and staff in your departments, and I know that sounds really. um, Like ridiculous that i'm saying out that that out loud, but I can't tell you how many students don't really make a relationship with someone and their department in terms of like asking them questions, like having a trustful relationship where you can just interact. There are a lot of students that are just like, I'm just, you go to class and you leave and their whole social structure is elsewhere and things like that. Your, people go into, into academics because they actually really want to work with students. I mean, they could easily go out and get a job too somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so they want to interact with you. They also don't know that you have a question unless you ask it, yeah. right? So. Um, I think that's the first thing is you should talk to your faculty members and you should talk to the, the staff member, your learner services people just to learn what it is that they are, you know, why are they there and what is it that they're the, the programs they're putting together because they're doing it for a reason.
0: Yeah, some some questions that like come to my mind that like, I wish I would have asked earlier are like. What are the key things this department is trying to like teach the students? What are the backgrounds of the majority of the faculty and like, what kind of industry surrounds us for jobs? Like I, maybe those are some of the ones I would have asked. I don't know. What do you think? Like they ask in that conversation that, that they have that close relationship with the faculty, what do they talk about?
1: So, I mean, sorry, my dog is sitting here looking at me and I have no (laughs) idea why, so I'm walking around the house a little bit. Um, I think. So a couple things. I would start with alumni, right? Mm-hmm. Ask them, where did the alumni go from our department and why, uh, and how the curriculum helped them? In fact, I would, at minimum, I would tell even, so there are a bunch of students that will always tell you, even though I'm sure their department's doing tons of things, my department's not doing anything to help me. If there's anything that you could do is just go to your department and say, hey, is there a way I can get in touch with some alumni to ask them questions? Um, and the reason I say that that's a good thing is because your generation sometimes feels better talking to someone that looks like you, right? I'm sort of old, right? After a while, it's like I look like your mother. So you're, you know, as much as we don't want to always listen to our parents, right? So I would talk to your alumni. I would. I'm almost positive every one of your departments has some kind of LinkedIn um, thing. So I would go look at LinkedIn and just see where your the different people go um, and find that out. The companies, I would say, ask them what companies we actually have a relationship with um, for mm-hmm. our department, because just, just being in the local area is not it anymore, because so many people are connected with companies around the uh, the True. country. Mm-hmm. So uh, the alumni network is largely where the, the, the departments will actually start. Also, it's find out if you guys have an industry advisory board
2: and i want to just piggyback on that comment about like companies and kind of where they headhunt or kind of where they look for talent because um like i i kind of learned earlier on when i wanted to go into like uh prosthesis like oh like these bigger prosthesis companies uh don't necessarily come to like nc state to look for talent it's like and that's fine um and then i also like moved on because that wasn't my passion but then also like Stryker and I kind of seeing where they get their pool of like rotational students like there's actually quite a lot of Duke students who come to Stryker for that program. And I was very surprised to see like a group of them just eating together and I was like "What? Well, how did you guys all end up here it's like oh Striker has a connection with you guys they have a record of finding good talent, so they keep going so I don't know. How- it's not as easy to find that out, in my opinion, without knowing people on the inside and pe- knowing the people at the companies. But if you do and you can find someone, um, they go to the career fairs where they have specific um, schools that they go to. And I think that's a really good place, too.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you are absolutely right. And actually, this is where I'm going to give a commercial for Handshake, which I actually, <laughs> you know, um, The I I don't know. I don't have just disclosure. I don't have money in Handshake, any of that. But I will Mm -hmm. tell you, I actually know somebody that was part of at least good friends with the people that started Handshake. What they told me is they recognize the fact that like the top X percent of companies actually only recruit from the very minority group of Schools in the entire country. Mm-hmm. The reason one of the reasons why they created Handshake was in order to give other people an opportunity to even know that programs exist. Mm-hmm. There is such information overload from everyone these days that it's hard to keep up. And so you're absolutely right. Like, I think find, networking with people is huge in terms of. Anything. I mean, I would ask people all kinds of questions and I would, you know, I, in fact, I'm giving a talk tomorrow on networking and, and first of all, networking is not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Right. So the average engineer or scientist, we cringe when we hear the word networking. I personally would rather hide in a corner than quote networking. (laughs) But the, the reality is, you know, network, networking doesn't have to be bad. It's, it's literally just being inquisitive and asking what people's roles are in doing things and then finding whether or not they can maybe either give you some advice or connect you to someone else that does. So what I often tell students is they'll be like, oh, I really want to, like, maybe I want to talk to Stryker, And I don't necessarily know somebody at Stryker actually do, but I mean, if I didn't, um, you, you know, know me. I would, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, you know, look on my, um, LinkedIn, and see whether or not I know some, I'm somehow connected to somebody and ask me for a warm introduction, right? Yeah. The social media, as much as there is, there's also a lot of positives that can help your generation in in trying to sort of overcome some of these challenges that you're talking about, for sure.
2: And, And before I forget, I did have one example, too. I don't know if this is allowed at every career fair, but I remember meeting people at my career fair who weren't even from my school. So I don't know if other schools allow that but interesting. yeah hmm. so like they came here to, to NC State because they knew a company was recruiting and that was kind of their way to get there and talk to them so they have done their research right so if you're able to find out and whether it's just networking outside of career fairs or if it's something formal like a career fair or another networking event and you can go to where these companies are recruiting the company that you're looking for that could be a really good way to get your foot in the door.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think the other thing that I tell students is, you know, I know a lot of you look at Indeed and you get, keep, keep hitting click. I yeah. would suggest if <laughs> if you do find a company on Indeed that you like, go to that company's actual website and submit your application through there. Because I don't know whether or not things are actually making it into the talent acquisition team. I mean, they should be, but, you know, sometimes that's a concern. The other thing I'm telling a lot of students right cuz um there's so much ai going into how people are finding jobs like yeah. if there's a job that you know you want right so brian just like you said you know you wanted to get into striker but you didn't necessarily have a connection but you know that they're hiring such and such cuz you see their job description mm-hmm. look at their job description and look at the words that they're using to describe what they need and see whether or not the talent that they're looking for is on your cv right you don't make stuff up that's the number one thing but if you're wording it slightly different go figure out the wording that they're using right so um because then that way the ai will pick those things up right because it's all kinds of craziness
0: if And back to what you said earlier, I mean, if somebody's doing these things and like plugging in with faculty, asking alumni questions, trying to network with the companies that typically hire out of their program, I think you can really put together for yourself like some broad trends of like types of jobs people usually get out of your program and what skills they have and what types of companies, are they med device, are they specific? you know, are they heart med device? I don't know. Like you can kind of put those things together. And I think I'm a marketing person. So I'm thinking this way, but you can really put together a personal brand for yourself, even at the university level, like never having worked before, just given, um, the reputation and the, the things your, your program bestowed upon you. Like my program prepared me to do with an entrepreneurial spirit and med device. Uh, you know, I don't know we could do something like that, but
1: That's exactly it. Right. And I think, um, I think the interesting thing is to realize finding a job is actually a really proactive activity Mm -hmm. because the world up until the time you all start looking for your first job, things were pretty automatic, right? Like people told you you had to go through K through 12 and you basically went to school, whatever district you lived in, unless you were fortunate to go to some private school or you did something else. Right. Then, um, Then when you went to college, you had to apply somewhere, but ultimately you knew you would get something, right? When you're applying to jobs, that guarantee isn't there. You're up against, you know, I told all my students, like, fundamentally, everyone will likely get an A, right? I mean, it's your job not to get the A, but you'll get a good grade. Then when you end up going for a job, all those people got A's. So you're not, there's, you're on a different type of level. So you have to take a little bit more of a proactive stance in crafting your career that mm-hmm. we're not used to by this time.
2: Crafting your career. Oh, it's love such an that. enjoyment. <laughs> it's it's either like a love-hate relationship for people. Yeah. I personally love doing it. Maybe it's why I've hopped around so many roles already, but um, yeah.
1: I mean, so- the average person um, will take a job, change jobs every one to three years now. Yeah. Sorry, Allison. Go ahead.
0: Oh, that's stressing me out to think about doing that. Oh my god, I just I, did my first, and I'm stressed about like how much that took out of me. So
2: right, we're right there. The one to three years. Yeah, and then we've, hell, we've, I guess you're. Yeah, right. we've yeah. now switched uh, to a different rule.
0: Yeah, maybe the maybe it'll get more normalized. But um, so we we talked about like prospective students and and current students, and then I guess I have like one last question for you, if you don't mind. Um, you have so much published work out there that can help current educators of college students but if you had to give just to to those that listen like one to two pieces of like advice or insight on like how to bridge this gap better um what are your thoughts
1: okay so just to make sure which gap are you talking between professional practice and the classroom or the way in which we teach
0: yes
2: (laughs) this question is
0: yeah this question
2: is like looking at the future of education the needs and future of the
0: uh, uh, to to craft somebody that can seamlessly transition to industry um maybe yeah
1: how to support them in it
0: yeah. um
1: i think a couple things to some i think i think uh one thing i want faculty to understand is that the path in which our students are taking is probably very different than the ones that we took ourselves Okay. Um, So I think we should be open minded in supporting them in that and finding ways in order to do that. I think the other thing is um, the literature will show you will tend to teach the way in which you were taught yourself, right? So there are a lot of incredible teachers out there that will, or educators that. are very passionate about teaching and uh, and sort of have this um, affinity for student-centered learning and connecting with them. Um, and so they will adopt these these practices regardless. I think there's, there's another set in there that will sort of revert to the traditional sort of lecture-based things. I think being open-minded that there are other ways to engage your student would be something that I'd really ask. Um, and that, uh, they, I think that we should be willing to think about different ways to craft a classroom, right? So mm-hmm. maybe the right way is not having just one faculty member always lecturing at someone for 14 weeks. Maybe it's team teaching. Maybe it's not having 14 week classes. Maybe it's breaking them into actually six weeks types modules, right? I mean, the 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 way in which you all are consuming information now is drastically different than the way I did, right? You know, it's. Mm-hmm. It's TikTok. It's all these, you know, things like I think we need to we need to find ways in which we can engage you um, because it's a different world.
2: Do you think this is the case in biomedical engineering, educational degrees as well? So like mechanical engineering or any of these other? Oh,
1: yeah,
2: absolutely. Yeah. So this is like a broad observation and advice just to education in general.
1: I think so. I mean, I think um, I think the reality is the jobs in which you all are going to take are are going to change right so jobs that exist today won't exist in 5 10 20 years i think our job in higher education our fundamental job is to make sure that you're technically sound and deep right that's the one thing i want everyone to understand because sometimes when we talk about these other skills we need to help mm-hmm. cultivate people are like but you know they they need to be really good good engineers i don't question that we absolutely right. there's a discipline that you need to understand you need to understand the theory and the quantitative principles no question mm-hmm. i think at the same time, though, our job is to teach you how to be adaptive learners as you go forward because you're constantly going to have to learn on your job as you're consuming more information in the way in which it's just, think technology is changing drastically. So we are doing a disservice if we don't teach you how to learn. So if I'm teaching you literally how to regurgitate what I tell you in the classroom, I've not done my job.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, I've heard the, the need to teach some of these maybe more like industry-facing skills be met with like, but we're sacrificing the the rigor and the science and the engineering principles, and that's definitely not um, the goal of that at all. What would you say is of, of some of the best pro, of some of the best practices of programs you've seen that are really connected with um, the employers of their alumni? What do you think are there are some of their strategies for the, maintaining that connectivity, um, or developing it?
1: That's a good question. I mean, I sort of have to think about it. Like, I think everyone is trying. I don't think hmm. anyone's figured out the magic bullet, right? Yeah. Like, um, I mean, I'm remarkably impressed by Northeastern in the way in which they've, they've really embedded the idea of co-op and partnership throughout the organization. So they have an entire infrastructure of um, connecting with companies that will uh, take, Uh, co-op students, they have a class that you have to take before you go out to co-op that actually Mm -hmm. talks about professional development. How do you write, you know, the the introductory emails? How do you do your resume? All of those things. I think that's really impressive. Um, But at the same time, and I think a lot of just about every department has recognized the fact that we need to Help under help people understand what our students are learning in the classroom, because one of the things that you'll often hear is people will be like oh people don't understand what a biomedical engineer is what they can do what their curriculum is. Partly because the curriculum is very different across different universities, Um, the other is is people just understand mechanical engineering civil and electrical in in a different way so um. You know, I hesitate on saying, oh, well, then you should definitely hire a partner liaison because that's what mm-hmm. people will do. But it's still, a, it's really tough. I mean, um, so I, I don't have the perfect thing for that. If someone does out there, I want, they should share it for sure. I know people <laughs> are try.
0: Well, I, I mean, still, that's that's a really interesting answer, and I think it's something we've kind of uh, been observing ourselves. Is it's a really tricky puzzle to solve, and, and the two entities have very different focuses in general. So connecting them is even more a challenge. But um You are such a wealth of knowledge. I feel like I could talk to you for hours and still feel like I've only dipped my toes in the water, but thank you so much for, for your time and all of this insight you provided here. I really see the value of everything you've said to like everyone along the spectrum from prospective student to educator in this space. So just thanks for all of your work, but also this podcast.
2: Oh,
1: thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It was great to get to know you both.
0: And thank you, as always, for listening to the BME Grad Podcast. We hope you subscribe to our show and leave a review wherever you're listening. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube, and get links to all of our social media, listening platforms, and more information on us at the BMEGradpodcast.com. See you next time.